Money FM 89.3, best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Special edition of Money and Me focused on a particular sector today. I'm Michelle Martin, finding the best semiconductor stocks for you, investors. Whether you're looking at Texas Instruments, Intel, Samsung, or Nvidia, or a semiconductor ETF, maybe that balances foreign and U.S. firms. Well, smart investing involves understanding what is shaping the market. So today, a look at the semiconductor sector and the geopolitical undercurrents underpinning it. The semiconductor market is a key sector to watch because. Chips play a vital role in new technologies. Computer chips are enabling technology behind a host of emerging trends, from the Internet of Things and 5G to self-driving cars and AI. Semiconductors are at the heart of the U.S.-China trade rivalry, says Alex Capri, visiting senior fellow at the National University of Singapore Business School, who joins me now for a look at what he's termed techno-nationalism. How are geopolitically driven policies in China and the U.S. Impacting global trade, manufacturing, global supply chains, and chip makers. Welcome to the show, Alex. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. What are the real costs of the U.S.-China tech war over semiconductors, Alex? What is really at stake in this post-COVID era? Well, Michelle, uh, as you mentioned in the lead-in, um, semiconductors are at the very heart of all the industries of the future. Um, they are the brains. Uh, they are they are the heart and soul. So so nothing uh, of any significance in the tech sector is going is going to operate without state of the art um, microchips. So in this regard, we have um, we have the the, the U S China systemic rivalry overarching, of course, everything that's happening now, uh, whether it's tariffs. Um, whether it's non-tariff uh, uh, measures uh, such as sanctions and export controls. Um, and we, so we have this overarching uh, U.S.-China, uh, really, frankly, deteriorating relationship. Uh, and we have, um, we have instances now where, where the supply chains are being weaponized, um, you, you know, in terms of export controls and, and entity restrictions and so forth. And so that's having a, a significant impact on not only semiconductor value chains, but technology value chains in general. If we looked at the, the rivalry, who would you say is ahead? <laughs> well, look, um, it, it's very tempting to put this in a kind of zero-sum, you know, black and white uh, context. Mm. Um, but, but, the, but, you know, the world in the last 30 years has, has become incredibly intertwined in terms of global value chains and certainly semiconductors, um, which are, you know, arguably the most complex value chains in the world. And certainly it's the most complex technology um, these these value chains have become um, very deeply in- intertwined all around the world. So to say, you know, somebody's winning, somebody's losing, I think is a bit of a, of a simplification. However, what I would say mm-hmm. is that when it comes to market share, when it comes to um, you know the the, the, the latest innovations uh, in in semiconductors, um, U.S. companies still dominate. Uh, the semiconductor sector. I mean, they've got well over 50% of the the global market share. 
Um, they've been in business for a long time. Um, they they are um, very very active, uh, certainly in the uh, in the design and the R and D, and and um, less so in the fab portion. But, uh, uh, there's a company in Taiwan called TSMC that is a is a subcontractor um, foundry that 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 makes a lot of these chips. We can come back to that in Taiwan a little bit later. But in general, uh, U.S. U.S. companies dominate still um, uh, the semiconductor market, and the the flip side to that is that uh, Chinese companies are way behind uh, when it comes to being able to produce commercial quantity uh, chips uh, that are high yield, and they're behind in terms of the innovation, uh, in terms of being able to produce leading edge chips. So. In that regard, Chinese companies are highly dependent on foreign technology. So, so you have this you have this contrast where you have China being the, the by far the world's largest market for semiconductors, and in fact, it's their number one import. They spend you know China spends more importing semiconductor technology than it does importing oil, right? Because it goes into virtually you know huge parts of the of the economy certainly of, of manufacturing, of, of, of you know, uh, electronics and, and, and other, uh, other items. So on the one hand, you have the U.S. dominating. On the other hand, you have um, a huge, huge demand in China, but no capability or very, very little capability to, to make uh, chips. So this is coming into play now in the, in the U.S.-China uh, relationship. So you say it's not a zero-sum game, but we know the Trump administration and semiconductor companies are looking to jumpstart development of new chip factories in the U.S. because of concerns of reliance on Asia uh, as a source of technology. Do you think that what we've experienced with the pandemic is going to accelerate these self-sustaining narratives? Yeah, so what what you're referring to there, Michelle, is um, um, the Trump administration uh, wants TSMC, the Taiwanese chip manufacturer, to build a, a, a ring-fenced um, fab in the United States, and I think Intel would be involved with that. And the reason for that is many of these chips are um, sourced uh, for the U.S. military. So uh, because of the, the trajectory, uh, again, of, of U.S.-China and concerns about uh, you know, what might happen with Taiwan, uh, whether it be um, that that TSMC's facilities or other tech facilities in Taiwan get infiltrated, uh, somehow the, the chips are sabotaged and then sent on to um, to the importers in the U.S. who then uh, you know end up uh, you know shipping these off to U.S. military, including uh, when we talk about programmable chips, um, uh, chips that go to the the F thirty five Strike Fighter, right, which is this state of the art most advanced weapon system of the, uh, the United States Air Force. So there's been a lot of concern, not just in, in the United States, but in, in other parts of the world that, um, you know, for national security reasons, strategic uh, industries need to be reshored, uh, uh, you know, back to the United States. Uh, and so the, the COVID-19 uh, crisis has only, as you say, accelerated um, that discussion and efforts to start reshoring, bringing back strategic industries. And that includes not just semiconductors, but other things such as pharmaceutical uh, supplies and, and, and other things that would be deemed 
um, you know, vital for for um, either national security or for, or for the sake of, of stability in society and, and so on. I understand TSMC plays a vital role in Huawei's production. Speaking of Huawei, can you can you share a little bit about how Huawei's story versus, say, Nokia's or Ericsson, what light does that shed for us on the workings yeah. in this race to dominate? Yeah, so, so this is really important because, as your listeners, I'm sure, are aware, the U.S. has been um, uh, trying to, um, to lock down Huawei's 5G expansion uh, throughout the world. And, um, of course, 5G, like any other technology, requires semiconductors. So the situation there is that Huawei has a, a subsidiary called High Silicon, which is a, which is a chip designer, and they've, they've designed a new chip that is, you know, on par with anything that Qualcomm would produce, uh, you know, in terms of uh, a chip for a smartphone and other applications. Um, but in order for silicon, uh, high silicon to be able to, uh, to produce or manufacture those chips, they have to go to TSMC because there are no, there are, there are no capabilities in China uh, to produce a high-quality, um, you know, commercial quantity sort of leading edge chips because again um, Chinese semiconductor industry is way behind in that regard so um, the way that the TSMC saga is playing out is the United States is putting pressure on uh, on that company to not supply uh, high silicon with those chips um, so so again this is part of this greater US China uh, techno nationalist confrontation uh, which is part of, as I mentioned earlier, a much greater systemic rivalry, uh, which I would say is going to continue to deteriorate. Um, so, in terms of, in, in terms of, you mentioned Nokia and Ericsson, mm. um, and, and sort of the race to dominate. What, what I think we're going to see going forward is we're going to see, for, really, for the first time in in decades, in, in quite a long time. We're going to see the U.S. and 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 uh, other um, Western countries really fo- start focusing on new new industrial policy, new partnerships, new public-private partnerships, new new incentives, new programs to start um, ramping up. Not only, as we said earlier, um, reshoring and and localization and production of very key strategic um, activities. But also to push R and D and to push, um, you know, to push market, market-driven incentives. So um, we've already seen uh, instances of of the uh, the U.S. Uh, administration uh, actually reaching out to Ericsson and Nokia and and you know offering to even fund them, uh, you know, provide <laughs> provide funding uh, to you know to get them. Uh, to create an alternative to to Huawei in the 5G space. You say in your report, techno-nationalism seeks to attain competitive advantage for its own stakeholders on a global scale in order to gain leverage, uh, in order to leverage this advantage, of course, for geopolitical gain. Help us understand how different ideologies are accelerating the adoption of competitive techno-nationalist policies. Well, I mean, we're, we're seeing this in terms of um, uh, ideologies regarding data privacy, uh, regarding censorship and surveillance, for example. Um, so if you look at the, uh, the last round of uh, restricted entities that, that were placed on uh, the restricted entity list uh, you know, by the United States 
there were some uh, 28, 29 uh, companies, I believe, uh, Chinese companies that were placed on this list. Why were they placed on this list? Well, because uh, in this case, uh, because of human rights violations uh, in Xinjiang province with the, the Uyghur population or the, 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 uh, the Muslim uh, population groups there. And so you might scratch your head and say, well, what does a technology company have to do with, with that? I mean, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And the rationale was uh, those technology companies are making the technology that goes into surveillance, uh, the technology that's being used to uh, to censor uh, and to enforce uh, censorship practices uh, and, and so on. So there were companies like um, DJI, uh, the, the the drone company that was put on that list. There were companies like uh, SenseTime, uh, you know, which which is a big AI company in in China, also involved in in you know making that kind of technology. And interestingly enough, as, as we mentioned earlier in the show, what's happening is you have entire global value chains that get, get impacted when you have an entity like SenseTime uh, put on a restricted entity list because many of the suppliers of their technology, and including chips, are American companies, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so, you know, I think going back to what you alluded to earlier uh, about um, you know, collateral damage, um, because these value chains are so uh, intertwined and they're so deep, uh, and there are, and because the the role played by American uh, companies in particular in the semiconductor space is still so big, um, there's a cause and effect uh, here. So, um, you know, you, you, even with even with Huawei in the 5G space, if you look at the amount of money that Huawei spends buying U.S. Uh, semiconductor technology. In, in, in 2018, it was close to $12 billion, right? So um, this, is a, this, is a, uh, this is an issue, this, this, this export con- uh, control and, and technology restriction issue that is going to profoundly impact uh, the semiconductor industry going forward uh, and the tech sector in general. Have you seen any gains for chip makers uh, when U.S. and China come to the table for the signing of trade deals? That's sort of been a parallel. You know, this whole techno-nationalist theme um, has really been a parallel to the ongoing trade talks. Um, you know, Huawei has come up, certainly, uh, but um, I, I don't really see the, uh, the amount of attention um, aligning, you know, the amount of attention that we're seeing uh, on the tariff issue, for example, um, I, I don't really see that aligning with the, the techno-nationalist issues that we've been talking about. Those are separate issues that are sort of being uh, looked at separately, I think. China recently mentioned China Standards 2035. We've had analysts on this show um, say they see this as a provocation in U.S.-China rivalries. What do you think? And do you think these standards are likely to be able to set the playing field for future technology standards set by China? Well, um, I, I, you, there, there are a lot of different sort of goals and, and programs that, that China is embarking on. Uh, there's one is the Made in China 2025 um, plan, which is they've, they've announced 10, uh, 10 key areas of technology 
of which, of course, semiconductors is is really the most important. And then you have you know autonomous vehicles and, and uh, AI of, of different sorts. Um, every single one of these technologies that uh, that, that uh, the Chinese Communist Party has, has placed on this list um, is uh, is relevant as an industry of the future. And I think by by publicly coming out and saying that they wanted Chinese companies to dominate this space, I, I think that was a very provocative uh, posture to take, and uh, it really produced a pretty swift backlash. Um, and uh, yes, absolutely, I would say that um, that those types of major programs uh, will, in, will, in fact, um, become catalysts for more techno-nationalist countermeasures uh, in the U.S. and in other countries around the world. I'm speaking with Alex Capri. He's visiting senior fellow at the National University of Singapore Business School about the phenomena called techno-nationalism and its impact on the semiconductor sector. Um, we, we know, Alex, that Apple has reportedly been in talks to shift about a fifth of its iPhone production from China to India over the next five years, all part of efforts to reduce Apple's dependence on China. How, broadly speaking, how have U.S. M&Es been impacted by this rivalry? Well, look, anytime you have a significant upheaval in a global value chain, um, there's going to be disruption, of course, Um but this is a trend that's going to continue. Um, you, you know, you talk about Apple moving, um, op, you know, moving manufacturing operations through their 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 um, their subcontractors and through their other networks to other parts of the world. It's not just Apple. I mean, it's it's essentially uh, all multinationals have now looked at the uh, the China situation and said, "Listen, we absolutely need to have." diversified supply chains. We cannot be over-reliant on any one country, China in particular, because of the escalating, uh, really, the technology cold war or even a hybrid cold war between the U.S. and China. That's uh, I've been saying this now for, for years, and I firmly believe that we're going to continue on that trajectory. So if you're a multinational um, that has significant operations in China, whether you're Japanese, American, European, etc., you're going to want to be able to um, to to mitigate risk and and uh, and move those operations out. So if you look at what the Japanese government is doing, they actually have a two billion dollar fund to fund Japanese companies to assist them in moving uh, manufacturing operations out of China and either reshoring them into Japan, uh, particularly to reshore them back into Japan. So I think what's going to play a big role here, Michelle, is um, the, uh, how, how significantly automation mm. um, uh, comes into play as these new companies are built, uh, as they're reshored. And I think automation is going to play a huge role, um, particularly in, in, in a situation uh, like the United States where you can't just pick up a huge, uh, you know, electronics uh, factory and, and move it from China to the United States because the, you don't have the same labor pool in the in the United States that you find in China. You may not necessarily have the same uh, supplier ecosystem that's built that's been built up uh, and that infrastructure, you know, that's been built up in China. But nevertheless, um, as 
automation comes online as you can use robotics more and more, as you can build a factory that requires fewer and fewer people, then that is going to, that is going to accelerate the localization of industry. And, and, and what we're going to see is we're going to see more and more production taking place um, in the market itself. So as, you know, if you can move production as closely as possible into the actual market, why have a long extended global value chain? Uh, and has to deal with all these other risks and and increasingly these geopolitical risks, which have, um, which have really become, um, you you know, very, very uh, complex and, uh, and, and very, very difficult to manage. Alex, what could the next phase of techno nationalism look like? Well, I think, uh, I think, as I said, um, we're going to see a much more localized regionalized world, uh, we're going to see, um, certainly, uh, we're going to see companies uh, that have a, a big stake in the Chinese market. They're going to look to continue to, um, to, to operate in the Chinese market and to sell and to produce for the Chinese market. But I think that's going to produce an in-China, for-China uh, policy where you have multinationals that are going to ring fence off those Chinese operations, and they will do the same thing for operations in other parts of the world, uh, which again will be, uh, I think, much more fragmented, um, you know, and, and much more ring fenced. Certainly, if it's a strategic industry, we will uh, absolutely see the return of strategic uh, production uh, to uh, parts of the United States. So, I actually, I actually think that. Um, there, there, there will be somewhat of a uh, of, of a manufacturing resurgence in the United States uh, because of these reshoring, and we might see similar things in in Europe. Um, we will continue to see an exodus of of uh, manufacturing of supply chains out of China that don't absolutely have to be there, um, and and this is going to create a, a completely different world to what we've been accustomed to. You know. Um, you know, the last 30 years of, of, uh, of globalization um, uh, it has come to an end. Um, it, you know, it doesn't mean that, that we won't continue to have global trade, that we won't continue to have a lot of cross-border uh, data movement, but certainly the, the, the trends of localization, nationalization, um, uh, you know, regionalization will, will absolutely be accelerated by these techno-nationalist currents. Great talking to you. Appreciate your time. Alex Capri is visiting senior fellow at the National University of Singapore Business School. Joining me here on Money FM 89.3. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SBH radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.